0: Our text is found in Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 13. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah, talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make 3 tents here, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when behold, a bright a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, "This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him." When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, rise and have no fear and when they lifted up their eyes they saw no one but jesus only and as they were coming down the mountain jesus commanded them tell no one the vision until the son of man is raised from the dead and the disciples asked him then why do the scribes say that first elijah must come he answered elijah does come and he will restore all things but i tell you that elijah has already come and they did not recognize him but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist.
1: on this incredible journey through the book of Matthew. And it reaches this profound turning point in chapter 16, where Jesus asks the disciples, who do people say that I am? And the rumors and all the buzz finally come to a head. Some say Elijah, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And Jesus doubles down. But who do you say that I am? And Peter under the inspiration of the holy spirit you are the christ the son of the living god and we can picture the hallelujah chorus going off if this was an episode on tv right this is the moment everything has come to a head it has been revealed and then jesus begins to teach that the christ must suffer and die and peter Says this does not compute this is not the way it shall be literally I rebuke you may it never be the case And jesus's harsh response get behind me satan you have in mind Not the things of men you have not in mind the things of god But in fact you have in mind the things of men And the incredible call of discipleship follows to pick up your cross and follow after me this moment brings so many swirling emotions. The disciples think they've finally arrived. They think the moment of triumph is finally here, only to have everything capsized. That all of their expectations are not quite the way they're picturing it. And we can only begin to imagine the flurry of the emotions the disciples have. And into this, Jesus adds this wonderful really difficult to understand promise at the end of chapter 16 he says truly i say to you there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the son of man coming in his kingdom and we can only imagine the confusion and the emotional swing the disciples are experiencing on the one hand we put ourselves in their shoes and what do we recognize Everything they have ever hoped or dreamed for has just been told to them is going to happen The messiah the long-awaited anointed one is here and you're going to get to see it But on the other hand, jesus keeps talking about suffering and dying and there is just this incredible tension and we can just feel the disheartening confusion in the mind of the disciples and it's into this moment that we come to this incredible passage of Scripture in chapter 17, where Jesus is transfigured, where his glory is revealed, where they catch a glimpse of who Jesus actually is and what he is worthy of. And we're so divorced from the Old Testament culture and the language, we're going to spend some time closing that gap today, but I wanted to get us started with a picture to help us catch an understanding of what this might look like. And so I thought there's kind of this one universal language that kind of spans the generations that might give us just a glimpse of this whole idea of the revelation of this glory, and it's superheroes, okay? So when I was growing up, there were superheroes, And superheroes had secret identities. I know that's less of a thing than it used to be, but it's still a thing. We still have lots of this happening. And back in the day, for our younger people, there used to be these things called telephones. Okay? Now, you recognize what a telephone is. But telephones used to require wires. Not just to charge these devices that you could carry with you everywhere, but to actually make them work. And because we did not have cell phones that traveled everywhere, they had these wonderful things called phone booths. So you could go in, drop a diamond, then later it was a quarter, then it was a couple of quarters, but you could go into this little booth and you could have a private conversation and people would wait in line to get a chance to use these. Now, there is this one superhero in particular that I grew up with, right? And there is this moment where he steps into a booth and he goes through this transformation, right? Right? That all of a sudden, this S comes out, right? He is revealed to be somebody entirely different. And there's this moment that runs and spans all different levels of superheroes, right? This whole idea of the secret identity and the revelation that comes. There is the moment where their friends, their loved ones realize, I don't know how I missed it, but I'm dating Superman. Or my best friend is Spider-Man. I don't know how I missed it for, you know, umpte. right? There is that moment of revelation. There is that moment where the lights go on and they understand in a new and a profound way who that individual is, right? And then there's always that push and that pull afterwards. Why? Because their relationship is never the same. Things aren't quite the same. And what I want to do this morning is help us to realize this. A glimpse of glory changes everything, right? That glimpse of Superman, that glimpse of our superheroes changes everything in those movies, right? How much more should not a glimpse of who Jesus is create transformation in the lives not only of the first disciples, but among us as well as we read this text today? So our text this morning comes in two movements, two glimpses of glory. The first, as the disciples climb the mountain, is a glimpse of exaltation. It's the exalted Christ in all of his glory, his power and his majesty. The prefiguration of the day when he is going to come in power and clean everything else up. The glory that was his before the foundation of the world. But then as the disciples descend the mountain, we're going to get another glimpse of glory. And that's a glimpse of glory found in suffering. And what that glimpse is, is that glimpse of all that lament we sang about earlier. It's the ability to transform suffering through glory. Because suffering is not the end of the story. Glory is the end of the story. But we can't get to glory unless we go through the suffering. There is no glorious resurrection and ascension without the cross and the grave. So we're going to dig into this first glimpse that we're going to unpack in the first eight verses, the glimpse of exaltation. Verse one, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Right. We get six days, three men in a high mountain. It's a great setting, right? You could almost make a sitcom out of that, right? right? But there are important images caught in here we don't want to miss. Six days, immediately the Jewish mind goes to the six days of creation and the rest on the seventh. But as this passage unfolds, we can't help but think about a story from Exodus. Exodus chapter 24, verse 16. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. This is a setting that brings to mind for the Jews that there is something profound that's going to happen, and it's going to be revelatory. God's about to move in a profound way. And then we come to three men. Guess how many men Moses took up on the mountain with him? Three. Why? Deuteronomy says that witnesses have to establish testimony. What do you need? Two or three men. Well, what's better than two? Three, right? Peter brings with him. Peter, James, and John are brought with Jesus so that they can offer testimony. We'll look at this passage and unpack it a little bit later. But Peter writes in Second Peter about this experience. He says, we were eyewitnesses to this glory. He is there to testify to it. And then the high mountain. Mountains matter in Matthew. Why? Because mountains matter in the Old Testament. Profound things happen on mountains. Right? We already pictured Moses on the mountaintop. The Ten Commandments. The presence of God. And then we're going to get introduced in this passage to who else? Elijah. Elijah has two profound mountaintop moments. Smack down battle royal on Mount Carmel. Prophets of Baal. Prophets of Asherah. Versus the one prophet of Yahweh. And then... Elijah goes through that deep, dark depression and doubt and lament, and he's brought to another mountain where what? He hears the still small voice of the Lord, the reassurance that God is at work. It was never just about you. I have other prophets. I have other things. So take heart. I've got this. It doesn't all rest upon you. And Matthew, oh, Jesus does all kinds of things on mountains. But Matthew frames two mountains, one at the beginning where Jesus is what taken by the evil one up on top of a mountain and offered the entire world if he will but bow down. And then what do we get at the end of Matthew? Matthew 28, a passage we got to look at just a few weeks ago. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me, not by the evil one, because I did not buy it, but by my Father in heaven. Mountains, And so all of this setting communicates something profound is going to happen. We can just feel the anticipation in the original reader's mind as we come to verse 2. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as bright as white. He was literally transformed. The same word Paul will use to say in Romans 12, we must be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Same word he uses to talk about how we must be transformed from one phase of glory into the next in 2 Corinthians 3. A profound word describing something that we can barely scratch the surface of. And then we come to these images. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. Images of the Shekinah glory, God's presence among his people in the Old Testament. Pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night among the Israelites. When Moses would go into the tent of meeting, the light that would come down, his face would shine with the glory of God. We can't help but think of Daniel chapter 7, verse 9, where Daniel says, And I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothes were white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning, This image that is so profound. Jesus will tell us when he comes to the Olivet Discourse, this image of the Son of Man returning in power among the clouds in blazing light. We could flip over to Revelation chapter 1, where John has the vision of the glorified risen Christ. And he is surrounded in light and white garments and eyes that are blazing. There is no denying that something profound is being revealed. This is the glory of God, and it is coming from Jesus. And if we missed it, God is going to make sure we don't. Verse 3, and behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him, right? Just in case you missed that something profound is happening, two dead guys show up. But they're not just two any-dead guys. If you wanted to pull out two witnesses from the Old Testament to testify that this glory is real, and you wanted them to be a beyond measure, who would you pick? Moses, right? The one who met with God face-to-face. The great lawgiver. The one who led God's people out of slavery in Egypt. And if you had to pick a prophet, Elijah, the most powerful prophet, among them all and we think about some of the similarities of these two men they both had that unique ending right elijah chariot of fire and then we could go flip over if we wanted to take some time this morning into a rabbit hole we could go re- read jude 9 and there's that whole weird thing about the battle for moses's body and we don't have to spend time, you know, thinking about all the things it could mean. People did that for like an entire century. You could go read all the wonderful trappings and all the things people made up to try and explain that. It's fascinating. And sometimes we just need to recognize the secret things belong to the Lord. I don't know what that means. I don't know. But like there was speculation. There was, you know, when these two people show up, like everybody is rec- Something profound is happening here. They're both mentioned What? At the end of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4, the closing verses of the Old Testament before God and his prophets go silent for over 400 years. Verses 4, 4, 6. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. The last words of God. Remember the words of Moses. Remember the law. Verse five, and behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Something profound is happening. We can even recognize how do people refer to the Old Testament as the law and the prophets. If you were going to pick one to represent each, it's the books of Moses. And who's the prophet who stands above all? Without argument in the first century, it would be Elijah. This would be who everybody would point to. This is a testimony. What does Jesus tell us? I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. On the great road to Emmaus after the resurrection, what does Jesus do? He explains how the law and the prophets were what? All about him. And here we get the glimpse of that. Moses and Elijah are both here, and they're testifying to that. And they're talking. Wouldn't it be great if we knew what they were talking about? There's some of those things where it's like, I'm so thankful we have more than one gospel. I love Luke because he's into details. Luke 9, verses 30 and 31. And behold, two men were talking with Moses, with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. And in that deep irony, that Greek word for departure has the root exodus. Right, Moses led the exodus out of slavery in Egypt, but now what are they talking about? They're talking about another exodus, an exodus that will have to do with freeing them from slavery to sin and darkness. That what is being discussed is the coming is sufferings of christ and it changes everything and we'd think that the disciples would be just utterly jaw dropped right but peter's not i guess that doesn't really surprise us right peter's always going to break the silence he's always got a great idea verse four and peter said to jesus lord it is good that we are here Yes, it is. You brought me. This is a good thing. This is glorious. Like, we're getting to see something nobody's ever gotten to see. This is great. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah, right? Let's just hang out here, and it's great. There are all kinds of thoughts about what these represent, and in those moments, what I like to do is just flip over to Matthew and Luke, and again, both of them tell us, I'm sorry, Mark and Luke, and both of them tell us what Peter did not know what he was saying. That, that's their understanding, you know, that, that's their take here, right? So let's not spend a whole lot of time trying to figure out what he was saying when the gospel writer said he didn't really know what he's saying. So instead what I want us to do is focus on what follows because that helps us see what's wrong with what he is saying. And so to help us get that picture, just to set it up, it seems like there's two things that are going to be corrected here. One is a recognition that this is supposed to be a temporary thing. This is a glimpse of glory. This is but a moment, and Peter wants it to last, right? And then there's this other aspect where Peter seems to be equating moses elijah and jesus we've got these three great incredible men of god right Lawgiver, prophet messiah they each need a house we each need these things and what we're going to see revealed in the coming part is that both of these things seem to be what are being pushed back against and part of how we draw that is what god doesn't even let peter finish Right? Peter kind of blurts out, but God's like, whoa, we're just gonna quash that right there. There's something in this that needs to be done away with. Verse 5, he was still speaking. Right? In this sense, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to So we need to unpack that imagery just for a moment. The cloud, right? In the Old Testament, the cloud was what led the people of Israel in the wilderness. When the cloud moved, the people moved. When the cloud stopped, it was time to break camp, right? It was God's presence physically manifest for the people. And that word overshadows is the same word Luke uses to describe what happens to Mary in the conception of Jesus. Right? These are powerful, powerful words, powerful imagery here. This is my beloved son. Jesus is not just another prophet. He is not just another lawgiver. He is unique. He is something special. And I am what? I am well pleased with him. Listen to him. What is it that the disciples have been struggling with ever since they figure out who Jesus is? That whole cross and suffering thing. Now, can we blame them, right? Like, if if we could fast forward to glory, most of us, like, if there's a skip button, not just for commercials, but for suffering, like, sign me up, right? We would all want that in a moment. I am well pleased what does the divine voice of the father want to make sure they hear jesus is on mission this is my plan this is exactly the way things are supposed to be going so listen to him and that word that quote listen to him comes out of a profound context in the old testament the context of a promise where there will be another prophet like moses greater right we see the profound fulfillment that matthew is pointing his original audience who are so steeped in the old testament scriptures to understand that there is this one he is unique above all and this pathway is a pathway that has been designed and it cannot be short-circuited listen to him verse six Gotta love it. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified, right? Natural response to the presence of God. God shows up in scripture. What do people do? They fall and hit the ground. There's a fancy theological word for that. It's called a theophany. My favorite example is John 18. Jesus is praying in the garden. The disciples, they scatter. The guards show up. They're coming to arrest Jesus. And there's this moment where it's like, who are you? And Jesus is like, I am. And all of a sudden, like, everybody just hit the ground. Like, they just fell down. And, and John just keeps going. It's like one of those moments, you know, like, they're, they're, they're like the guards are getting up off the ground. It's like, that's one of those moments I would love to see an artistic interpretation of that that was real. Like, you know, I'm like, what, what happened there, and why does it not get more than a verse? Like, that sounds like an awesome moment. But it's all you need to know is there is that something about the presence of God that ignites terror and awe in us. Why? Because in that moment, when we encounter perfect holiness and glory, we recognize everything in us that is not. And it's been there, one, since the garden. Adam and Eve were naked and they knew no shame. They walked in the garden with God. They eat of the tree. And when God shows up, what's the first thing they do? They hide. We've been hiding ever since. Why? Because that glory is terrifying. It is overwhelming. And yet something profound is going to happen. Verses 7 and 8. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. couple great things there. It's interesting. In Matthew's gospel, everybody's always coming to Jesus. There's only a couple of times where Jesus goes to somebody else. This is one of them. The other one? Matthew 28, where he's going to go to them and give them the Great Commission, right? But this warrants Jesus coming to them. He touches them. The same word that's used in so many of those healing miracles where that healing is communicated through touch. And what does he say? Rise. That same word he uses to those who have been afflicted, to Peter's mother-in-law, he touches and he raises. He asks the paralytic to what? To rise and pick up your mat. Again, rise, rise. These images of healing and miracle in Matthew. And he puts his hand upon them and he says, arise, do not be afraid. Because I am here and I am with you. And they lift up their eyes and what do they see? No one but Jesus only. Literally in Greek, they saw him, Jesus. Jesus. It's an emphatic. It's designed to communicate, to draw attention to the fact those other guys, they're not in the same league as Jesus. Moses, Elijah, they're great. They had incredible ministries, but their whole thing was to point to Jesus, and that's why he's the only one who remains. And so we've taken a little bit of time to unpack those first eight verses, and I don't want us to miss some of the profound implications. If we journey to the top of the mountain, If we catch a glimpse of God's glory, we cannot remain the same. It calls us to some profound things. First, it calls us to listen to Jesus alone. We live in a day and an age where truth is relative, where everyone wants to define reality based upon how they feel. Certainly the way I feel can't be argued with. Certainly, my interpretation of reality is just as relevant as yours. But here, there is only one who has glory. There is only one who speaks with the authority of the Father. Listen to him. Drowned out every other voice until Jesus' voice is the only one which is allowed to speak. Do not listen to the lies of the evil one. Do not listen to the wise words of this world. Listen to the words of Jesus. For he is the one who has come to speak to us the words of God in a profound fulfillment. We mentioned before 2 Peter 1 where Peter says, I have witnessed. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And then he goes on to draw this implication, starting in verse 18. He says, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. What is Peter's implication? Listen to the prophetic word. Listen to the words of Jesus. Why? Because that's what the divine voice told him. Listen to Jesus. We make it so much more complicated. We want to add in all these other things. Listen to Jesus alone. Next, we can't help but think about some of these other passages which contribute to our understanding of Jesus so fully. Don't settle for anything but the glorious one. We live in a day and an age where people are always looking for something new, where we want to bring and syncretize everything together. And into that world, Hebrews 1 speaks a profound truth. It opens these, this way. Long ago, At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he beholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. God spoke through many great men and any means throughout, but now he has spoken finally. He has revealed himself ultimately in Jesus. You don't need anyone or anything else. He is the glorious one. So be encouraged. It would be easy for us to be left with just the terrifying moment. But what do we recognize? In the midst of the terror of God's presence, we recognize what? The holiness of God did not come to condemn, but to offer salvation. God comes not to condemn the world, for the world was condemned already. It stood under God's judgment, but he came to offer a way of salvation. For those who are in Christ, this holy perfect amazing god is not against you he is for you and he proved that through the glories of the cross and that means that all of these incredible promises are fulfilled if jesus stands firm and is the fulfillment of the old testament of all of moses and all of the prophets then all of his words stand true and can be counted of looking towards the future as well we recognize that they do something the law and the prophets could never do. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 plays with this idea of glory, how Moses would go into the tent of meeting and his face would become glorious because he was in the presence of God and he'd veil it because it would eventually disappear. And this is the implication Paul draws from this in 2 Corinthians 3, starting in verse 15. He says, yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord and the veil is removed, now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is Spirit. God has come and he has fulfilled and done for us the transformation that the law could not do. The law could not save us. The prophets, for all their vehemence and courage and strength of calling the people back to the law, what? They couldn't change people's hearts. So what did God do? He did what the law and the prophets could not do. He created that transformation by coming himself. That the law might, what, be written upon our hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit. That God himself would take up residence and make us into his temple to transform us from one level of glory unto another until the day of his return when we are made like him. And so this first image is all about the exaltation of Jesus and all the implications as they're up on the top of the mountain. And if we could just stay on top of the mountain it would be great but jesus knows that this is not the end and so as the descent begins down the mountain we see another glimpse of the glory of god revealed a glimpse of glory that transforms the idea of suffering so let's unpack verses 9 to 13 starting with verse 9 And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Right? The same image of what he did back after Peter says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Tell no one. Right? There's that weird cryptic thing. We even have a fancy name in in scholarly circles, the messianic secret. Right? Like Jesus is just like all the time. He's like, don't tell people. It's not time yet. And then we recognize, if the disciples struggled with it, how much more is everybody else going to struggle with it, right? They are expecting one thing. And you know what happens when people's expectations don't get met? The husbands sleep on the couch, right? No, right. No, when expectations aren't met, Jesus ends up ultimately on a cross. It only takes not even a full week, right? Just a few days from Palm Sunday, when everybody wants to hail Jesus' king, to shouting crucify him that's the power of expectation failed and unmet right so jesus says you can't get to the glory without the cross you can't get there without the suffering it is a part of it and then the disciples are going to just take this weird turn it feels to us verse 17 and the disciples asked him then why do the scribes say that first must come Elijah? Like, wait, what? I don't know about you, but in my mind, like, I, okay, Jesus just said don't say anything to anybody about this. I think I would need a few minutes to reflect on everything I've just seen, right? That, that would be my natural response. Or maybe to do like, can we talk about what just happened? Like, okay, can can, what, what, can you just please interpret that like like you do with the parables? I didn't quite get it, Jesus. Could you just give me a little more? you know, Cliff Notes version, like kindergarten explanation, please, Jesus. Like, I I don't fully get it. But yet they're going to bounce in a completely different direction. Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come? Well, we already looked at that prophecy, right? The basis of it at the end of Malachi. All of the scribes are looking to this. Now, we also have to recognize that in the time of Jesus, everybody's excited about the Messiah. And everybody's writing about what it's going to look like For Elijah and Elijah has taken on this powerful role like he's going to come back and he is going to kick everybody and the Romans out of here and then the Messiah is just basically going to have to show up and sit on the throne. Now to give us a glimpse of how important Elijah was to the worldview of the people at the time, I want to flip over to Mark real quick. At the end of Mark's gospel, we read this in Mark 15. Jesus is hanging on the cross in verses 34 to 36. And we read this, at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani?" which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, what? Behold, he's calling for Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let's see whether Elijah comes to take him down. When Jesus cries out from the cross, who do they think he's calling for? Elijah. Who is it who's going to come and create this great and profound deliverance? Elijah, right? Who did they just see in a vision? Who did they just see up on the mountaintop, right? It's Elijah. And so there is this profound thing they're still struggling with. If Elijah is here and Elijah came to kick butt, do we still have to do that whole suffering thing? Do we still, why, why does, why do they say, like, it, this isn't lining up with our sense of understanding? And you gotta love Jesus' his response. Verse 11, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. Fortunately, he's going to give us a little more clarification. Verses 12 and 13, but I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. How could people not possibly recognize Elijah? Right, And that word there doesn't mean, oh, he changed his hair and they didn't recognize him. That word carries with it an active rejection. They did not want to see That he was the one who was the forerunner of the Messiah. That if John the Baptist was Elijah and he suffered, then certainly the Son of Man will have to suffer as well. Glory and suffering are inextricably linked in a way that challenges the disciples. And even though we're living on the other side of the cross even though we're living on the other side of the resurrection if we're honest right it's still a hard pill to swallow that the pathway to glory is also the pathway of suffering and so wanting to just take a minute what is that glimpse of glory how can that transform our under our understanding and idea of suffering I want to just give us a few thoughts. First, the New Testament affirms that what? We share in Christ's glory. How? Through suffering. Romans 8, 16 and 17 puts it this way. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if we are children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Like if we just stop there, woohoo, that's some sweet stuff. That's coffee cup kind of T-shirt kind of verse, right? I'm a co-heir with Christ. This is wonderful. This is awesome. I'm a child of God. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. That there is an inexplicable link between glory and suffering. And that when we share in suffering with Christ, we share in his glory. Another glimpse from Peter, this time from 1 Peter chapter 4. Verses 12 and 13, he puts it this way. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Man, there's some verses in the Bible, and it's like, oh, I don't know that I really like that one. Verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. insofar as we share in his sufferings we will share in his glory but there is a reason jesus says it's worth it to give up everything to follow me for whoever loses his life for my sake will find it there is a profound truth that glory is found in the midst of suffering but we also want to widen that out to recognize that it's an incredible blessing in the midst of suffering to know that Jesus knows what it is like to suffer. Adam you know, alluded to that earlier, that there is a profound truth in lament. There's a profound truth found when we recognize that the problem of evil isn't just an intellectual problem. You know, if you wonder how there can be a good God and how he can allow evil, and yet he's all-powerful, theologians and philosophers have killed forests. And there's a lot of great stuff in there worth reading. But there's the reality that when I'm suffering, when I'm hurting, I don't want a philosophical answer. I'm not looking for an intellectual response. What I want to know is that somebody knows my pain and that somebody cares. Because when there's somebody who knows what it's like to hurt, they can know what it's like to care. And there's a profound truth and comfort that is found in the midst of suffering when we recognize we have a God who knows what it is like to suffer. A God who knows what it is like to suffer pain. Not just physical torment, but rejection by friends. To be misconstrued, to have injustice leveled at them, to be abandoned by those closest to you, to weep over the graves of those you love. We have a Jesus who walked through life just as we are, and it changes everything to recognize that the glorious one did that not because he had to but because he chose to so identify with us. That's what it took to save us. And so we rejoice in knowing that suffering is something that is shared by that one who loves us so much that he gave his very life. He endured all of that to declare our the price i'm going to pay it anyway and so if we're here this morning in the midst of the sufferings of life to hear the encouragement it's not going to answer why i wouldn't dare to try but that you would know in the midst of that pain and suffering that there is a god who loves you and who knows what it is like to hurt And we can't help but talk about suffering unless we also talk about suffering in light of the end. To recognize that there is a profound preview given here. When I was growing up, I got to grow up in the golden age of Star Wars. And I was five years old when my parents decided to haul me off to Israel. And I took my Millennium Falcon, which meant I could not recline my seat because I was in the back row on a giant jet, I don't know what kind it was, but my seat wouldn't recline for those 18 hours. Why? Because I had a Millennium Falcon behind my seat, but it was absolutely worth it, because I was the only kid I knew who had one in Jerusalem, and it was amazing, not only for personal bragging rights, but it was a Millennium Falcon, right? And so I grew up in Star Wars, and there used to be This world that existed where you did not have the internet, you did not have everybody spoiling everything, and yet, once in a while, things would come out because people didn't necessarily think that far ahead, so I was a part of the Star Wars fan club, which you could join for like $10 a year, and you got a monthly magazine and all kinds of cool pictures and other stuff, I was a bit of a geek, but... One of the benefits of that is that at one point in time, before the Empire Strikes came out, they had an opportunity to get a limited edition storybook. I got one. Not many people did. Do you know what's in this book? Everything that ruins the Empire Strikes Back, for those of you who don't, you know, like, for those of you who grew up like this, this wasn't a thing. But, like, the moment, spoiler alert, Darth Vader is luke skywalker's father right now can you imagine being like one of like the only people in like your school who knew that before it happened right like it like all of a sudden like i was like famous right like <laughs> not really but like there's that moment like i don't know whose idea was to like give out the storybooks with the great spoilers in them but like somebody probably messed that up Right? Because they, you know, they're, like there were supposed to be a whole lot more of them released than, you know, like other people didn't get them. And I think I know why, right? Because somebody didn't necessarily think that through. But just that incredible moment of privilege, of recognizing you got a glimpse, right? The storybook, it's not the movie, it's not nearly as cool as the movie. But does, oh, does it have some big reveals in it? Absolutely. Does it give you the hype? Absolutely. And this is exactly what our text today gives us. And we need to be reminded that we are blessed to not just be living after the transfiguration, but after John's vision of revelation. Because what is it that ultimately transforms suffering? It is glory and it is the promises of Jesus. Because we need to recognize what? As we form our theology of suffering, as we recognize how a glimpse of glory can transform our suffering, we recognize that we suffer in light of the end of the book. We suffer in light of Revelation 21, verses 3 to 4. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. We've been given that incredible preview. Do we understand it? Have we seen the full? No. But we endure because we know it is temporary. We endure because we know that the pathway is, to glory is marked by suffering. And so today as we get the chance to unearth this giant, incredible text, we see this incredible glimpse of glory that calls us to exalt Christ above everything. And it calls us to follow him, even if it costs us everything. Because he is who he says he is, and it's absolutely right. We now have an opportunity to celebrate that glory and. The-